When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. Welcome to the TNF Hotline on the Knapsack Files. Your calls, your voice, your thoughts, and your host, Ken Knapsack. We're here in beautiful Burbank, California. This is the TNF Hotline, the first official episode of the Knapsack Files Hotline Show. The concept is this. I've set up a voice message box. It's available to my Patreon supporters at a certain support tier. They call in. They've got questions for me, sometimes about me, my life, my career, sometimes just about life in general, and sometimes... They're off the beaten path of the normal questions, and that's what we do. I take them. I answer them. Uh, We've been kicking around this show for uh, about the last two months on my Patreon page, Knapsack Files. Patreon.com slash Knapsack Files. Plug, plug, plug. But that's where it is. That's we've been playing around with this concept, and I like it. I used to do something like this with my friend Tim Powers and Joe Ruggiero on a show called Ship of Fools that uh, didn't see the light of day, and it was a great idea by Tim, and and I've seen other shows do it for sure, but this is my version. Here we are. We're going to have some fun doing it. So that's how you get into me. Uh, You call in through this number on the Patreon page, and then I take your calls. And maybe one day we'll be live coast to coast and we'll do this like an old radio show because that is where my heart really lies. So let's dive into the calls. We got a couple from my friend Thomas. You can follow him on Twitter at Sir Thomas the Tall. Hi, Ken. It's Thomas from Vancouver, BC, uh, in Canada. So the world of wrestling in my limited time in it taught me much about respect and the nature of it, both that uh, many people who demand it don't really deserve it, and those who don't demand it typically deserve it. Um, At least that's what I've taken from it. My question to you is, uh, what lessons did you take from wrestling about respect and how it should be given or earned? Um, And what have you taken that forward into life? Um, what lessons has that taught you in life and how have you applied that? Uh, it's a bizarre world and respect is one of the greatest lessons I learned from it. So I'd love to know, uh, what that did for you. Thanks, Ken. Professional wrestling, life and respect. There are lessons there. Thomas, that is a good thought starter and a plug back to just a few weeks ago here on the Knapsack Files podcast feed. We had Jay Washington on. You may know him from the movie Trivia Showdown, Comedy World, and the movie Pundrentry World. But I also uh, know him and know of his work in the world of professional wrestling. And we did a show, Life Ranked, the top five things uh, that Jay learned about life through professional wrestling. The lessons are deep, as with any industry with its own kind of uh, culture and history and traditions. 
in the pro wrestling world. You may not be a fan of it. You may not be overly familiar with it than just something you, you hear in passing on the pop culture landscape, but professional wrestling is an old, old American art form that is spread throughout the world. Uh, it is bizarre. It is weird. It is silly. It is stupid. It is dangerous. And it is entertaining. It is dramatic. And it is compelling. And the people that put on those shows and pour their souls into this world, and I, I was for a, a short time compared to others, uh, you can pull a lot of life, life lessons forward. And I didn't really talk about it on that episode with Jay. I wanted Jay to have the spotlight. He's been in it far more uh, than I have for a longer period of time, and his lessons were good. They were hard lessons, lessons you have to learn for yourself. So to the issue of respect, in professional wrestling, respect is very much earned. And that's true for a lot of businesses, right? That's how it should be, at least. But in professional wrestling, there's an extra level of, if you don't have the mileage, you don't necessarily get the respect. And they'll let you know. And it is a harsh and a sometimes hard line. I have seen rookies, uh, guys who are green, girls who are green is the, 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 the phrase, the, the term there. I've seen them be cast aside. And some of the stuff is brutal. That's why I said it's harsh. And times have changed in a lot of ways, and I don't know if the pro wrestling world is uh, as tough as it used to be. That's not a comment on the people in it currently. Just you hear the stories. Hulk Hogan uh, goes to his first training session, and his leg is intentionally broken by his instructor, and he's told, you really want it? Recover and come back. We'll see in a few months, kid. I don't know if that would fly today, and I don't know if I would want that to fly today. I think some of those things can can change, but the the idea of you need to know your place and you need to learn from what it is to be in your place at the bottom of the heap and work your way up. Ask questions, but also kind of speak when spoken to. Again, it, it can get harsh in the world of pro wrestling. You have to earn it. You can't come in thinking you know. You can't come in going, I did this over here. And I'll say it directly as it relates to me. I had been doing sketch comedy, been on radio, uh, did stand-up, all that stuff. When I stepped into the world of professional wrestling, actually, you know what's funny? I don't think I had started stand-up yet, because that came in 20, uh, 2003, and I started for uh, my, my go first go-around of professional wrestling in 2001. And when I walked in, though, I thought, hey, I know wrestling. I've been watching all my life. I was going to be a manager. I knew how to talk. I knew how to be funny. I knew how to craft some insults and cut a promo. I'd seen Bobby Heenan do it, Jimmy Hart, all these great WWF managers I watched. Also, J.J. Dillon in the NWA, WCW, Paul Ellering, Precious Paul Ellering, another one of my favorites. I'd seen these guys. I'd read about these guys. I'd studied these guys. I knew it. I was intimidated in the locker room. I could tell right away. This wasn't like the supportive sketch comedy days uh, I had at the Groundlings and other locations, training, performing, working with your friends, and, hey, you're new, come on in here. Let's give you a hug and start you out the right way. No, this was different. I could tell right away. But in the back of my head, I thought, I got this. I got this. 
And then I walked out. I was introduced, Phenomenal Phil, the wrestler I managed at the time, great guy Phil Lander. Uh, he he uh, cut a promo and then introduced me as his manager slash backup to help him get title shots and here in Millennium Pro Wrestling, and I come walking out. And the crowd doesn't know who I am. This is a small independent wrestling show, 150, 200 people there at most for that first show I was at. And, and so immediately, I don't have the respect from the audience. It's not just, boo, you're a manager, we're playing along. They're like, boo, who are you? Get out of here. Get in your car. Drive back home. Don't return. So you get in the ring, and I had prepared a statement in my brain, you know? I kind of memorized it, rehearsed it in the shower. This is going to be funny. I'm a bad guy. I'm a heel. So I'm going to cut them down, remind them they're all poor, and we're better than them. (laughs) Oh, it was perhaps the worst minute 30 of my life. And Phil was great. He stood there quietly in the ring. Uh, the commissioner of the uh, federation, uh, the, that was the what well, we referred to him, but behind the scenes he was part of the booking team and producing team, my good friend Dan Fair. And I could see, I didn't know Dan at this time. Dan and I are great friends, and I consider him a friend and mentor. I could see him come to the ring and kind of tell the referee and the ring announcer, speed this idiot along. Gave the old uh, wrap it up with the fingers thing. And I'm cutting this promo. I'm the bad guy. And my guy's got to win the title. Didn't have the respect for the audience. Didn't have the respect yet from those in the ring. And then when I went in the back, I was promptly ignored. Now my uh, good friend, now best friend, now brother from another mother was the guy in charge of that. But he... uh, he uh, he gave me encouraging words, but he knew. He knew that I was here to get my teeth uh, cut for the first time in the business. And that's the first time I felt failure. The first time I felt, well, I thought I had this. First time I learned you had to not just get the experience to get heads to turn, to get people to pay attention. You're going to have to work for it, hurt for it. And just keep doing it. I messed up later on. I, I had a, a match later on, when I, about 2010. I, I messed up a spot in the match. I paid for it with a chair shot to the head. That was a concussion. My head is swollen. Bad. Bad. Everyone, a lot of other people were mad uh, at the uh, the NWA champion at the time that, that hurt me. Uh, uh, but my best friend said, when I, when I, he just came up to me afterwards. He's like, hey, welcome to the business. You messed up. That was the cost. That was the price. My head swollen. Not my favorite thing. Not my favorite way to have things dealt with, but I understood. I understood. I can be bitter about it. I can make jokes about it. But at the time, I knew if I had not messed up, if I had paid attention, if I had not been so overconfident, I would have earned the respect in that moment. And then the other thing that pro wrestling has taught me is once you get good at this or comfortable at this and start to get the respect, you can lose it. I have seen many people with many, many talents and many skills in the ring and outside the ring lose that respect. Lose it because they took it for granted and they didn't continue to work on it. Work ethic is very big in professional wrestling, as is how are you in the locker room? What kind of locker room person are you? You can have all the skills in the world, but if you're a cancer in that locker room or you're a destructive force in that locker room, you're just not 
easy to get along with in the locker room, you can start to lose that respect. It's part of my belief system that I believe, and I've been a boss, I've, I've been uh, successful in certain things, I always have to remember and remind myself that you can lose it and I can be replaced. I was a damn good boss back in my old day job. Uh, I had some mistakes, I had some bad times, I wasn't always clued in, but I always believed I could be replaced. I was good, but I knew that if I finally left, I'd be a memory. And I am now. I'm a memory. I go back to the, one of my old work locations, no one there remembers me. Uh, there's very few people left. I talk to some of my, my old employees, but I'm just a memory. I'm a name on a piece of paper. So, that causes me to, to zero in on the idea that in order to keep respect, you have to continue to earn it. And a lot of that, a lot of that comes from the wild, strange world of professional wrestling. And you thought it was just tights and fights. Let's go to the next call here. Hey, Ken. It's Kai from Huntington Beach. My question today is, during your time doing sketch comedy, are there any characters or bits that are memorable or that you're fond of? Kai from Huntington Beach checking back in. He's been calling up on the uh, Patreon-only versions of this show. And, uh, well, all right, I mentioned it up top when talking about pro wrestling. I did do my time in sketch comedy. A lot of you have been listening to me for a while know that. I uh, basically have not returned to it. I think when I first came back to Collider or joined Collider full-time back in late 2016, I started writing sketches and appearing in things for uh, the Awesome Tacular show on Verizon Go 90. It was like the first time I'd written a sketch since uh, my sketch and improv days ended uh, when I was uh, asked to uh, stop training at the Groundlings back in 2002, December uh, 2002. I remember well. But let's think of happier times. Let's think about uh, the times I did it. And Kai's talking about characters. When you're doing sketch comedy, that's what you want to create, right? Reoccurring characters, memorable characters. That's going to get you to the shows like Saturday Night Live and at the time Mad TV, even back in the day in Living Color, Exit 57, Kids in the Hall, doesn't matter. There are a lot of places uh, where great sketch comedy was put out there. And here's the thing, I will admit, I was a good sketch writer. There were some times I wrote some sketches that uh, blew the socks off other people. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be told that. People who are now... On Saturday Night Live, or been on Saturday Night Live, like, oh my gosh, when, when, you, when you debuted that sketch, I was like, oh, I have to step up my writing game. But I, I shied away, and it's so weird, because I'm a fan of reoccurring characters. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan and somewhat of an amateur historian of Saturday Night Live, like, like a lot of people out there, and I love the recurring characters. And the years, the mid-90s, uh, like 93, 94, in 95, late 95, uh, well, actually it would be early 95, a 94, 95 season, like, you know, they, they kind of shied away from reoccurring characters. There were some, Farley, Sandler, those guys had them, but it was just funny sketches, funny beats, all those kind of things. And then when uh, the big change happened and the show was perhaps closer to cancellation than it ever had been since like 85 or back in 80, when the first uh, incarnation of the show uh, was wrapping up, uh, they really focused on 
reoccurring characters. Let's go find performers who aren't stand-up so much. They had a few in Jim Brewer, of course, one of them, Daryl Hammond, but Daryl Hammond did, did the voices, did the characters. Uh, but they got the Will, Will Ferrells, the Sherry O'Terry's, Chris Catanz, Chris Parnell, Jimmy Fallon. Those kind, those kind of performers came in during that friend. David Koechner in 95, um, 95, 96 season. Like, that was... That was the idea, and I'm a big fan of that stuff. But for some reason, when I was doing sketch comedy, I could never really unlock the reoccurring character thing. I didn't think... I had some attempts. I had a character that was a mini-golf pro, a fast-talking mini-golf pro. I tried that one. I tried to throw some other... But all my sketches that got through to the performance uh, level and status were, were just slice of life stuff. Where I think I, I think if I had a reoccurring character, it was me. And that's not a recipe for success in sketch comedy. It's, you know, one would hope a recipe for success in stand-up comedy. And it definitely is somewhat uh, a key to being a good broadcaster. And I think that was part of it. I could write. I could write funny. And I had a lot of poignant sketches. And I do love poignant sketches that are uh, sweet but uh, weird and funny. Uh, one of my favorite series of sketches, and it's a reoccurring character, was the homeless character that Tracy Morgan would write. That he lived he lived down in like a sewer and like... We, Britney Spears was in a sketch, and, and she came down one time, and 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 he would be weird, bizarre. And he thought a he thought a piece of wood was a phone, and and he, but there was always these the sweet undertone to the sketch and to the performance of Tracy Morgan, and I have a lot of things like that. Uh, I had I remember I had a sketch of a of a like basically a janitor at an Arby's. And a dreamlike scenario happened where he witnessed kind of a a girl a girl uh, get treated bad by her boyfriend in the restaurant, just a real jerk. And this whole fantasy thing erupted where he like sang and danced with her, and like uh, it was like a Disney movie at an Arby's. Um, and uh, that didn't uh, go too far, but I liked writing those kind of things. So, Kai, to your question, you know what? That that was might have been the problem. The character I wrote was me. And at one point, my uh, director and teacher for my final level of training at the Groundlings, Karen Mariama, uh, was very insightful. She pulled me aside and really, really told me, you're not writing characters. You're writing yourself. You need to work through that self, that stuff in another way. And she says, if, you're gonna, you know, if, if it's going to work through itself in writing and performing, I don't want you to keep writing these characters that are you. The underdog, the guy who doesn't get the girl, the guy who doesn't succeed, or any of that. The the lowly guy, the sad guy. I'm going to assign you the task to write characters that are the exact opposite. Arrogant, cocky, confident uh, Lotharios, that type of stuff. So I tried my hand at that. And I think if I was to do it again now, it might be a little better. But I still have a way, I still have a style. Um, I still like playing those characters that don't quite understand how uh, how uh, bad off they are. They still got a sweet side to them, but that's what I tried, and and uh, those are some of my uh, more experimental sketches. But that's what I loved. I loved writing, loved writing me, which is not the best thing for sketch comedy, but it's a great question. Uh, some of my sketches are out there on YouTube somewhere. You can find them. Some of them are there. It's a weird one with me and Brian Keith Etheridge, who's the writer-producer now, where I am a, a fast asleep, and Dido's uh, 
uh, the Dido song of, uh, you know, I'd like to watch you sleep at night starts playing and he keeps sneaking in the room to like tuck me in and I keep freaking out. That's the kind of stuff I like to perform during those crazy, heady days of sketch comedy. Hello, Ken. It's Ulrich calling all the way from Bergen in Norway. And I have to say that it's kind of weird for me to call into a show like this because we don't really have these types of calling shows in Norway. I mean, we barely have a radio station. I'm sure that I could, if I were just to yell something out of the window of my home, I could reach more people than the highest rated radio station in the nation. And I live in a street with only three houses, so. Well, anyway, the only exposure I've previously had to call-in shows is when I have listened to American radio, more specifically the Howard Stern Show. And I love the Howard Stern Show. I don't necessarily love Howard Stern, but I think his show is superb. So I was just wondering if you shared my sentiment if you were a Howard Stern guy yourself and if you have in any way been influenced by him. That's Ulrich calling all the way from Norway. I love knowing that the Knapsack Files reaches out to a three-house street in Norway. Uh, you know, I was, I, I was going to maybe slice up that call a little bit, make it a little shorter, but I listened to it again, and Ulrich, I loved the way you just kind of slowly told us about how bad Norwegian radio is, and maybe maybe I got to break that market. Maybe somehow I got to get a radio show just in Norway, um, and that'll change my career. I love it. But your question is great. It's about Howard Stern and the Howard Stern show, and what I feel about Howard, and uh, what I feel about that show, and as an influence. And yeah, actually, it, it is, which is weird to say. You might not think that of me on the surface. I am a fan of Howard. I'm not always a fan of everything he's done, has done, or will do. But I think this there is perhaps no greater radio radio personality ever. And he he's one of the best broadcasters of all time. He's one of the best interviewers of all time. He is a groundbreaker for sure. And when I uh, around the time uh, I was in radio, but it was around the time that I got control along with my good friend Matt Donovan, Matty D on the K Bear ninety five morning show which was kind of ridiculous. We were probably too young to appreciate it at the time. And it was a weird move to kind of, we were, I think, I think we were placeholders why they figured out what to do with the station, to be honest. But the experience was there. And I had this morning show, like 20 years of age. Uh, I was a morning DJ. And um, so was my good friend, Matt. And at that time, right around that time, uh, the movie of uh, Private Parts, the adaptation of Howard Stern's book, hit theaters. Uh, Paul Giamatti is pig vomit. Um, I I really love that movie. I saw it seven times in the theater. Loved it that much, and I own it. I still watch it, and I've uh, I've read that book. Now, what's interesting is that book, and it's kind of kind of encapsulates my feelings of Howard. The book is a tell-all. It's dirty. It's sexy. It's crude. It's got all that uh, Howard Stern stuff in it. But in the middle of that book. In the middle of that book is the story of his radio career, the story of a lot of his battles and his failures and his his rise to the top, but also how long it took and the tough choices and chances 
um, needed for that. And that kind of became the movie. That's the story of the movie. And there's a lot of other things in the movie that are, you know, over the top and typical of, of Howard. But I was greatly influenced by what he did. I tried to be, um, you know, like him in the sense, and again, not the content. I think some of that doesn't evolve up, but, but in the interviews and, and creating a community, creating uh, outside-the-box thinking while remaining a broadcaster, re- remaining a, a radio guy. And I would try really hard to study. And in an interesting way, though, I was intimidated by the path he took. And in my head, all right, do I want to? I want to be. I want. I'd like to be a Howard Stern type and have a radio show with a cast of characters and all that kind of stuff. But the radio life, especially then, and radio—it's probably even worse now. But the radio life, that career. It's a lonely one. It's a tough one. And you are town to town, small town to smaller town to small market. You got to take these jobs. You're moving around. I love the singer-songwriter, the late singer-songwriter, Harry Chapin. And that's right. Good old cheesy Harry Chapin. Cats in the Cradle. That song, right? Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue, The Man in the Moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. We'll get together then. That is Harry Chapin, but he also had a great song. Um, called W-O-L-D, and it was this sad tale of a morning DJ. Uh, with the chorus was something like, I am the morning DJ at W-O-L-L-D-D-D-D, playing all the hits for you. I'm not going to sing, I'll get sued and break your uh, ears. Um, and it was a sad <laughs> tale of a morning DJ and the life of a DJ and his failing marriage, the kids, the kids, the kids, all the stuff. So combine that with seeing how Howard's career, you know, we're seeing it if you knew of him, uh, you know, the early to mid-80s and then at this time mid-90s when he was, you know, the king of mall media. Uh, if you go back to the 70s, here he is barely scrimping along, moving, packing up, he and his wife trying to figure this out. And then he faces so much opposition by the time he gets to D.C. Uh, and then especially when he gets to New York for WNBC. That all kind of intimidated me. It might have pushed me out of pursuing radio. And I knew a good friend of mine uh, who was at the radio station I was at. And, and she, uh, Megan, took a took a different path and had to go up to Reno and, and uh, ended up there. And you just got to move around. You're, you're, a, you're a, a soul cut adrift in the radio world. And it's even tougher now to make it. So I think perhaps I was intimidated by Howard's Path and that song by Harry Chapin. But still to this day, his interviews, how he gets them to, gets big time celebrities to, you know, it comes out that they admit so many things that they don't want to admit. And I'm not about that. I'm not about the gotcha stuff. And I don't necessarily think Howard is too. He loves getting some salacious stuff for sure. But I, I like the idea of being able to sit down with a guest and figuring things out about their life and what we can pull from it. And that, that is uh, something that runs through the Napsack Files interviews, even on Life Ranked. Uh, the one we did last week with uh, Stephen Ellis of Black Series Rebels, it's, you know, five reasons to cook for yourself. Pretty simple, pretty cut and dry, but I think there's lessons to be found in there. There's lessons to be found in Steve's journey to cooking for himself, to my journey to cooking more for myself. There are lessons there, and that's what I like, and I think you can pull a lot of things out of interviews and people's life. Um, people's lives when you 
are able to shed all the pretense. And Howard does it with people in a, in a world where, you know, he's at getting access to people who might be on publicity tours. And I, 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 I used to love late night TV, late night interviews. He's a big Letterman guy. Um, I like Conan and all that stuff. I'm fascinated by that world. But after a while, I, I didn't, I just kind of stopped tuning in because those interviews, um, just not exciting. They're just cookie cutter. They're, they're on a, conveyor belt of publicity i'm here i got a prepackaged story that we ran over with the show up segment producer backstage let's do a little funny bit you know fallon tries to get them out of their element kimmel's great they're all good at what they do i love what they're doing but you know especially kimmel now and conan's conan's taking a different path but he's great but letterman i mean we're seeing it now with his netflix series he's he turned into a great interview he wasn't at first notoriously bad interview at first um but letterman and howard to bring it back to howard Stern, they connected they were always uh, close on the air um because they they were both broadcasters and so i looked to what howard did with his interviews and i try to bring it into mine uh, i don't have that um, whack pack type of situation. Uh, I know the Schmoes No Live show, the podcast. When it hit Toad Hop, that's what was uh, we attempted to build, and I think to a degree did. Uh, that those days seem to be done, but we had a lot of fun with that. And and I know Stern is is an influence for Harloff and a lot of a lot of people, and it does run through a lot of my broadcasting side. I'll just have to build up that whack pack. Thanks to Ulrich calling all the way from Norway. Time for the final call of the show. We're going to go back to Thomas. He's always got great shows. He's a contributor to my show over on Anchor Daily Thrones. Calls in a lot with some great thought starters. Uh, a, a burgeoning broadcaster, I think so, in my mind. I'm predicted. Thomas, get to it there. Um, he's got a, another call. I wanted to go back to him. I thought it was a great way to end the show. I wanted to know if there was ever a moment, a line or a scene or uh, maybe a song, something that's ever uh, stuck with you that, that you've applied to your life philosophy that has become a part of who you are. Um, there's many for me, and it just popped in my mind, and I'd love to know if there's a moment like that for you. Thomas wants to know if there's a song, a scene from a movie, something, something creative, something out there in media that has connected with me and been a part of my life and something I've carried through through all the days, the dark days, the good days, and there is. And I have to go to the Beatles. I think it's it's hard. It's funny for me to think. You you guys, if you've been watching my work now, if you're following me because of Star Wars or just Knapsack Files, stuff over on uh, um, Collider or back in the Screen Junkies days, you might not understand. You might not fully grasp how much of a Beatle nut I am. I know, there's a lot of us out there, but I found them so organically, and I've talked about it on some of the shows before. But there is a moment, and it is on graduation day in high school, June 1994. Oh, those were the days. And me driving away. Now, my family was there. I spent the afternoon with my family. Grandparents had come down. We had some lunch, all that kind of stuff. And I was going to go hang out with some of my friends. And I wasn't much of a party or not, not super social uh, during high school. But uh, I, I had uh, some stuff planned. But I was driving away from the campus. And I uh, had back then a 1981 Ford Fairmont. You could look it up. It's a bad car. Mine was white with like a leather top. Called it the Millennium Fairmont. And me and my good friend Gavin, uh, my uh, best friend at the time, 
got in the car. I was going to give him a drive home, and uh, uh, we were all going to go uh, go out go our separate ways. We go out and celebrate tonight. And uh, Gavin had been a very close friend of mine from ninth, uh, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. And those are tough years, right? High school was fun for me in a lot of ways, but it was tough like a lot of people. You, you're, it's all about discovering who you are, and you're forming your dreams and your goals. And though it seems like yesterday, it is really far away. Not just a a number anymore. It's just mentally and emotionally, it is in my distant past, as it should be. But the the feelings of those moments uh, carry on. There's a reason high school is so powerful for a lot of ways, just like college is as well. But there's something about high school. Because in college, you feel you're part of the real world. You feel you're already out there, out and about strutting around town. But high school, you were still very much a kid. You were still very much in your youth. But by the time you graduate, I was 18, some might be 17, uh, you're, you're an adult, right? You've got all these thoughts and you've got all these dreams in your head and you're scared and you're confused, but you're also ready to take on the world. And there's these speeches at your commencements uh, that are uh, very uh, inspirational and all about uh, go forth and change the world and all those things. And they're all true and they're all good. But what stuck with me from that moment was driving away from the campus in that Ford Fairmont. And I don't even think at the time think my tape deck was working. I think so. I think it was. Uh, there was a time when it wasn't, and I had like a little radio player in the car. <laughs> and I had a cassette tape in, and uh, if I was listening to music during that senior year of high school, chances are 80% of the time it was something from the Beatles. And there's a lot of big, giant, epic Beatles songs that could play at that moment and carry a lot of weight, carry a lot of purpose, uh, be uh, what I needed to be in that moment, to have a poignancy. But the song that came up and the song that stuck with me, and it's a moment that has lived on forever, is from the Magical Mystery Tour soundtrack album, Baby or Rich Man. Now, is that the old-time classic? No. No. A lot, lot more Beatles songs out there have a little more craft to them, um, a little more well-known. Though this one's well-known. But there's a driving rhythm to that song, and I was driving away, and so it picks up. And I just remember cluing in to the moment. Cluing in to the atmosphere, uh, the feeling of graduating and heading on out to the world. And there's some nonsensical lyrics written by Lennon, credited to Lennon and McCartney, of course, per their agreement. Uh, How does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? Now that you know who you are, what do you want to be? And if you traveled very far, far as the eye can see. How does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? How often have you been there? Often enough to know. What did you see when you were there? Nothing that doesn't show. Comes back again after that chorus. How does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? Tuned to a natural E. Happy to be that way. Now that you've found another key, what are you going to play? Not nonsensical in that moment. We are all one of the beautiful people. 
We are all individuals with hopes and dreams and goals and struggles and pains and confusions and obstacles ahead of us. For some, the journey is long. For some, the journey is too short. But in that moment, driving away from my high school in Royal Grande, California, heading towards a country road that I would often drive to gather my head. I still, when I visit my hometown, I drive through these country roads to clear my head. And these songs, uh, this song, these lyrics rattling through my brain and the feeling both of excitement for the world out in front of me. I'm graduating high school. I have graduated. The world is there. And I wanted to be a stand-up comic. I wanted to be a professional wrestler. I wanted to, uh, you know, write movies. I was going to do it all. I was starting to uh, turn towards radio. That was not too far away. Uh, broadcasting live on UHF station was a little uh, less, a little over, I think, a year away from coming into my life. All of those things. And... Here I am now, and it's been a long journey. I got to a place where I kind of wanted to be in my career, but it's not where I want to end up, and I'm still going, and I'm still searching. And right now, in this moment, in 2018, I am not sure how things are going to play out. I'm not sure how my career is going to go. I am not sure what even the next month of my career looks like. But I go back to that moment driving away from my high school. Hearing these words, how does it feel to be one of the beautiful people because we all are? How often have you been there to that point, to that realization that you are? Often enough to know, yeah, we all know it deep down. We just, we fear. I think success, fear of success, uh, hiding yourself is more prominent than than just any other general fear when it comes to life. What did you see when you were there? Nothing that doesn't show. It is already showing. It is already there with you. And I love the line, when it comes back, how does it feel to be one of the beautiful people tuned to a natural E? Silly Lenin nonsensical lyrics, right? But you're happy to be that way. And this is the one that I loved. Now that you've found another key, what are you going to play? If that isn't life at 18, looking to the world in a nutshell, and if it isn't life now at 41, trying to find another key and perhaps having that key that instrument that way that path already in front of me what are you going to play it is there it is there for me it is there for you and i carry that moment around in my brain often thomas you asked a great question because it's very much there and i've had other moments other songs when I quit my day job, there was a song, uh, We Were Here, by these uh, two, f- uh, I think they're French, they're two female singers, uh, singer-songwriters, and, and the song, it, it, it came out 20, 2015, and we were here. We walked these streets at night, you know, traces of us are there. And that, that was a poignant moment as I was walking away, driving away from this job uh, of, of 17 years that I wanted so much to get out of. But it tied in. It reminded me of this moment in high school. Now that you've found another key, what are you going to play? So, folks, I'm asking you here on the Knapsack Files. Talk about reoccurring characters, how I like to find a poignant uh, level to them. Find, try to find out uh, interviews personal lives where the lessons in those this is that moment it's my lesson for this week here in the knapsack files you all have found another key there is no limitation because baby you're a rich man baby you're a rich woman baby you're a rich person
what are you going to play? That is it for this week. That is the TNF Hotline, the first official episode open to the public. I want to thank to uh, thank to all my callers, and uh, there's other other people who have called in on Patreon. I still got some calls to use, but that is next month. If you want to call in, you know what to do. You got, you got to go to Patreon, support me there, get the number, call in, uh, and lay it on me, lay it on me, children. You can find the Knapsack Files on many podcast f- uh, places. Where do you like to find your podcast? I'm probably there, Podomatic. Potomatic Mobile. I am on TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Rate and Review, and special new this month, iHeartRadio. And I want to shout out to Kavi over at iHeartRadio for getting me on there. Uh, You can listen to the Knapsack Files for free. A lot of choices on there. iHeartRadio, get the app, and the Knapsack Files can be played in your car with ease. That's where we're at. That's it, guys. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Knapsack. We'll see you next month on the TNF Hotline.